What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 56 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com. My co-host who will be joining us shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, managing editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. Once we get all caught up, we'll dive into some education. We're going to talk about learning chops and learning licks and the process that Mike and I go through when we're doing that stuff. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Jimmy Chamberlain from the band Smashing Pumpkins. In our gear review section, we'll be checking out a buyer 65 by 15 steel snare drum. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, including your audio questions. We'll get to our, your son of a... Picks of the week. It's five star. Let's start. Skype is cooperating. That's nice. Yeah, I had to apologize for all the cell phone interruption last time. That was driving me nuts. Like I, I had a near panic attack when I was trying to edit that. So you obviously had no idea that it was happening when we were recording. No, I mean that's right? that stuff I mean, is invisible. You? you don't see it until right. you open up the audio file, and it's like. And and the problem with that kind of noise is it's broadband, so you can't EQ it out. It's everywhere. I would have had to have right. low-pass shoved my audio so much that I would have sounded like I was in a cave somewhere. Right. It was so bad. But I apologize for anyone who was completely annoyed. So lesson learned, never put your cell phone next to a microphone. Right, as I move mine away. That's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> uh, how's your week been, man? It's been good. It, this Today is a super hectic day. We have so much that we had to get done here at the office. We had to finalize the December issue. We had to – no, we had to – I don't even remember what issue we're on. We had to finalize <laughs> the November issue. We had to meet on the reader's poll for oh. next year, which will be launching December 1st. So that's how far ahead we work. So we're, oh we're creating content that isn't going to be consumed by anyone until December. And we have to have it done Jeez. today. Like <laughs> done. August 24th. Just wow, man. Deadlines. And so – so give us a little rundown on, on the reader's poll stuff. What actually happened? So you choose who the people are going to be in the poll we, and then people vote on that and okay. they obviously have the write-in version? I'll go, I'll go back years and years. In the original day, we didn't have any kind of nominations or suggestions for okay. who to vote for. It was just you fill out the card with your favorite drummer. And it was just a flawed system. It's why we don't do that for elections in this country. It's why we don't do it for anything because you get just right. – I mean there were years when Neil Peart was winning like the jazz category, things right. that just okay. make no sense whatsoever. So a few years back, we decided, all right, let's let's go through the year of coverage in the magazine from you know, December to December because the, the Reader's Poll nominee list comes out in December. So we go 12 months, 12 issues. Every artist's name that's in the magazine, we assign them to a master list of categories. Okay. And then we just meet and go through who has the who had the better year, who should be taken off the list, who should be added, that kind of stuff. I got so you. So we whittle it down to five nominees and we always give the option to write in as well. So you Perfect. can always you can always vote for your favorite drummer in any category. We just offer suggestions, so maybe you don't really remember who was really had a great year in the fusion yeah. world. So here's who we think had a great year in the fusion world. Got it. Got it. So it's completely oh, I open. I mean, it's, we're not obviously when you give nominees, you end up it's easier to click a name than it is to type in a name. But ultimately, you can vote for whoever you want. Nice. Very cool. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, hopefully. Uh, I don't think I'll be nominated this year for anything. I haven't done anything cool this year. It's been a it's been a nice chill year for me. But I got my win from last year, so you're so lying. You just you launched your your updated website this year. Yeah, that's true. That that was uh, a big task. And it's funny. I have some I have some guys here at K 
camp that are very influential in the Silicon Valley world in in e learning, and uh, mm. they're 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 getting me back in the neurotic world again of like my website's not good enough. It's uh, got to be better. Uh, yeah. We I, I can. I can do better. I know I can. And so, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I just took like that first mental break in a long time. of just like, okay, I'm really proud of how fast people are learning. The, the, what I was hoping to achieve, which is accountability in online learning has started to happen. Everything's good. And then you just get one guy that's like, well, have you thought of, and I'm like, no, I haven't. <laughs> we should do that. Let me call my developer. Um, it's a never yeah, ending process. I can't imagine. It really, yeah. I mean, Especially when I'm lucky enough that Amber, my wife, protects me from the business aspect of it. So I'm not really coming at this from a business point of view. I'm coming at it from a did my students get better from this service point of view. And that aspect will never end because they'll never be getting as good as I want them to, you know? Yep. Um, it's ever evolving. I mean, it wasn't too long ago when people were laughing at the fact that you were trying to teach people online. I mean, oh, it yeah. wasn't that long ago. Like, you can't it really wasn't. You got to be in a room with somebody. Well, no, you don't. Yeah, <laughs> no, there were entire entire threads and message boards <laughs> dedicated to it. Uh, I even lost endorsements over it. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's you know, and then at the same time, it, it makes me closer to the people that really believed in me and said, you know, I mean, Roy Burns deserves so much credit because he, he took out a full page ad in Modern Drummer Magazine yeah. with me for no reason. Like literally I had nothing to, I, he just said, I I think this is the future. So we're going to, and I'm like, you're taking out a full page ad on a, on a drum teacher. I don't think I've ever seen that, (laughs) you know? Um, not to mention, I'm not one, you know, I'm not a Jim Chapin or a Freddie Gruber. It's like, I'm an online drum teacher and we don't have any proof of concept that this will work because it hasn't happened yet. I can't say, look at what this guy did for whatever forever some other style of education i'm going to do that there was no proof of concept at the time so guys like roy burns and just the entire team at aquarian it's probably why i'm so loyal to them um norbert you know Mm. when he came up to me at nam and just said hey we get what you do if you ever want to talk let me know it was like that was the best pitch ever (laughs) you know just like uh what do you make oh you make symbols cool whatever i'm signing (laughs) i i don't care I just it felt so good to have somebody say we get what you are trying to do. I was like, uh, and that was you know six years ago, seven years ago. So, yeah. cool, man. Well, um, yeah, I'm in the middle of a camp now, and then I'll have a week off, and I can finally get back to filming some courses, get some more videos going. So it should be wait, good. Wait, wait. All right. So this is great. In the rundown, we have learning licks. Yes. I'm I'm currently in the process of learning one right now. Me too. Really? Yeah. yeah. I didn't even know you. Cared. <laughs> I, I don't. No, I do. I, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I care to the fact that I, I'm now tired of having the excuse that I don't play licks. Okay. Like, so, no, so, that's not an excuse. No. <laughs> that's like me saying jazz sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, it doesn't suck. You're just not very good at it. So, <laughs> but I used to say that when I was a kid. Like, jazz sucks. Like, really? Yeah. Have you mastered it? Yeah. To me, that's, I think once you've mastered something, then you can turn your back on it and say, that sucks. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, I'm, you know, I just won the world record in marathons. Fitness sucks. It's like, cool. <laughs> Look at you. You got a world record. You can say that. Uh, I but don't know that yeah, I can I, say anything sucks except for peas. Peas suck. <laughs> peas? <laughs> Shut up. Is that, are you really not a fan of peas? No, they're fine. I just don't like them as like a side dish. I think it's just, it's not really, 
it does nothing for uh, me. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm, I'm, I'm the same with two things. There's only two food items I can think that I don't care for in any way, and that's mushrooms and olives. Olives is a tough one. Sometimes I like them. Sometimes they they will not go. I cannot swallow them. <laughs> <laughs> it will not go. They permeate into everything. Yeah, such an overwhelming like, flavor. I can literally get a blueberry bagel, and I'm like, this touched an olive six days ago. <laughs> I know it did. Don't tell me this didn't touch an olive. I can taste it. It's a blueberry yeah. bagel, and there's there's a hint. Another weird but, uh, one for me is cucumber. Really? That's I, like that's top probably three of my favorite things in the world. Yeah, I don't mind it if it's diced up and put into a salad, but if it's just okay. big old chunks of cucumber, and it's not even the taste of it, it's the repeat of it. I'm like, I don't want to be tasting cucumber all day long. It drives me insane. <laughs> that's so awesome. And coconut. Coconut's another one. Stay out of my food, coconut. Okay, I'm with you on that. And, and it's – I'm not too – I don't have a problem with the flavor. It's the texture. It's, it's the like the fingernails. The, 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 yeah. the, yes. <laughs> it's like this the fingernails. Oh, now you just super ruined it for everyone. Yeah, I'm not I am not down with the uh the coca. Uh, uh, anyway, it's not my so jam. Licks, man. <laughs> <laughs> licks. So okay. What's your coconut lick? My oh my uh <laughs> coconut lick would be my fingernails lick would probably be right left kick. I I um when people will go big 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 that that one doesn't show up in my drumming very often. But my my cucumber lick, like the one that I like, I like it in my mm-hmm. food. So right now, what I'm working on is um, I'm starting to write a new book called Equals, and it'll be three equals what we agree that we could have a fill that's built out of four threes and a four that makes 16 total notes. But what does your three equal? Is it right, left, kick? Is it kick, right, left? Uh-huh. Is it flam, kick, kick? Um, so right now I'm working on the concept of nine equals and it's a really, really simple lick. It, so it, technically it's a nine stroke roll. Uh-huh. It just goes from the downbeat of one into the backbeat of two. And it's all double strokes, uh, double right hand on the hi-hat followed by double left as ghosted followed by two kicks, and then two lefts again. Okay. So it's right, right, left, left, kick, kick, left, left, and then backbeat on two. Right? And it's the the two left ghosts, followed by two left, or two kicks, followed by two left ghosts. That I'm really having a hard time with. Hmm. Um, evening out the sound. Sometimes the kicks are too loud. Sometimes the kicks uh, are taking advantage of my skip speed too much, so they're too fast. Uh, they're not as perfect as my hand doubles. Uh, and so anyway, so – and I think that was just – there was a time in Ireland where Ash, Mark, and myself were – we were kind of trading. We were in this one-drop feel and we were just improvising together. We weren't trading. We weren't jamming licks. But Ash did this little thing and then I was like, oh, I have one of those. And then Mark has one of those. But – what was interesting was we all had one of them, but mine was not Ash's and mine was not Mark's and uh-huh. Mark's was not mine. It was just like, oh, we all have heard this kind of gad, right. you know, and I have it. I have the gad version of it. I have it with inverted doubles and stuff. But when I looked at Ash, I was like, I think he's literally doing double strokes. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing cool, but it sounds hella cool. Does he throw the left foot in there? Is that his thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So his was his was uh, more of a five. It was like a repeated 30-second note quintuplet of right, right, left, left, hat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the right hand, it was almost – actually, yeah, it would be like if you felt it in groups of three of right, left, hat, right, left, hat. But he was diddling the right and the left. Mm-hmm. 
I do that same one. I just start it on the left foot. So the left foot is keeping my time for me. Oh, uh, okay. Um, so it's... So anyway, so I just started thinking nine equals. I'm going to make up some nine-stroke rolls with different variations. And this one, just right, right, left, left, kick, kick, left, left, right. It, it's just not... It's not clean. So I'm having to really, really practice. So that's the lick. We'll talk about how I'm learning it in a second. What is, what is something you're working on? The... Mine is... Um First of all, my uh, my coconut lick is the blushta. Okay, that's your. I it's just, not. As soon as I hear it, I'm like, please take that out of my music. Can you turn down the Can turn down the in my mix a little bit? Thanks. I'm I mean, good. it's it's effective. It it's it sounds cool, but it it just stands out to me. Like, there's the blushta. Like, I can't. Yeah. I've yeah. yet to hear it seamlessly integrated in a phrase to the point where I'm like, oh, what did he just do there? It's instantly like. He just did the blush stuff. So right, I know exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's cool. I mean, it's still it's cool. It's an awesome lick, but it. I think I think the blush stuff can be a, a little bit of a. On a positive note, it can be a gateway into other texturized, flushed out licks. Um, the one thing that people have to learn when they learn those things is the way you learn it, where you play it for the entire bar. That's not the useful way to do it. Yeah. Right. Like if I ever use it, it's. One single blushda is launching me into something, yeah. and since it takes up three notes, it's what launches me into starting something on the uh of one. Oh, um, okay, cool. But I never go like more than one of them in a row. It's never blushda blushda. It's blushda kakabutsu tokushikatang. Right. So yeah, I think Todd uh, Zuckerman had the best description. It's like a machine gun. You're just blazing yeah, Tommy the machine gun, gun. <laughs> spraying the crowd. He's like, you got it. That was. It's funny that that launched a whole thing of me. That was my first time having it broken down for me, even though everyone had told me, oh, it's a Tony thing. Oh, it's yeah. a, you know, then it was a Dave thing, a Vinny thing. It was like, well, it was a Todd thing for me because he's the first person that broke it down for me, you know? Yeah. So, um, all right. So, so that's, that's your, that's yeah, your that's fingernails lick. That's my fingernail lick. My, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the lick I'm working on, I, I've always struggled with starting uh, any kind of fill or phrasing with the foot. Like that just never with feels bass drum. right with the bass drum. Um, and it starts with like the the elven lick, the right left, the kick right left or kick left right. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't feel natural to me. I can do the other two versions with the bass drum on the third part of the triplet or the bass drum on the second part of the triplet. No problem. Starting with the bass drum, I just have a hard time keeping the time centered. Wow. So that's what I was working on. But then that launched me into the Keith Carlock lick. Which is a thirty-second note pattern, which is two bass drums, right, left, and then two rights, two lefts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's almost like a it's like a almost like a rough into the paradiddle diddle, but the rough happens with the kick. But the almost. and it happens on the beat. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. It's not like a. It, it's yeah. So the bass drum starts on one. The accents, the right and left, are actually on the E of the beat, and right. then you play a five-stroke roll to fill out the beat. So that is. Take, it's been painstaking for me to make that not flip to where the accents go onto the beat or for yeah. to flip it and start to play it as sextuplets. That's what I was going to ask. So, okay, so it's one, two, three, four, five, six. So it's eight notes long, right? Yes, 30 seconds. When he plays it, he doesn't – does he play it as 30 seconds or does he play it as more of a 30-second triplet thing that goes – that has like a polyrhythm over the beat? He plays it as 30 seconds, those, believe so it or not. So straight up – but really? So maybe it's just the fact that those two accents are happening on the E that gives it that yep. weird feel. And sometimes ah. he'll add he'll add an extra diddle to kind of to make it longer, make it go okay. over the beat, or he'll just kind of fill in the space with a double stroke roll and then 
launch right. into that at will wherever he wants. But the, the basic it. pattern is two bass drums on the beat, which was what every time you hear him do that stuff, it just feels to me like, where did the time go? Yeah, like no, if I, I totally, was a bass player, I'd be like, dude, I don't know where one is. You completely yeah. lost me. That's so funny because as soon as you said started explaining the lick, I'm like, oh yeah, he. I mean, he, he did that probably a hundred times in the Modern Drummer Festival yeah, solo. It's like his, thing. but yeah. it's his thing, right? But I always thought it it was phrased differently because of where the accents were. I was yeah. like, is that how's he phrasing that? I don't know because I assumed, like you said, I assumed his hands were the downbeat in his mind. Yep. Because his kick, he doesn't have like a triggered metal bass drum, so it doesn't show up as doom doom. It's right. like. Yeah, so I heard those hands as that's really cool. He does play it as as sucks up as well, but the the one that I'm learning is because that's the one that feels so weird to me is straight 30 second notes. Um, Because I I just kind of naturally launch into the triplet version, but since there's eight notes, it's like I just lose all sense of where the pulse is if it goes into triplets. So that's what I'm working on, and it's been. I thought I could just do it, you know, because I have the ability to play that. There's nothing. It's made up of things you can already play. <laughs> yeah, so right? it's, it's no big deal, but I recorded myself just with my iPhone just to be like, all right, where am I at? And it was like, dude, you got to go back to the absolute beginning. You've got to go back to like 50 BPM. You've got to tap yep. le- uh, eighth notes with your left foot. You've got to count out loud. I mean, I feel like I was yeah. in like fifth grade again. <laughs> I love it. And it's been That's like two kinda, weeks, and I'm still dude, not brother. to the point where it kind of pops out. That's exactly what I'm going through, and I'm trying to explain it to the campers because they're obviously going through their own torment in the curriculum. And I'm like, do you understand that I'm working on nine total notes and I'm on day six? And you guys are like bummed out at yourself that you can't learn 42 pages right. in in a day? I'm like, guys, perspective. I'm working on nine notes and I'm <laughs> horrible at it. And it's nine notes that are made up of things I'm really good at. <laughs> like, it's hitting two rights in a row. I've got that, man. I worked it out when I was 12. So it's like, but it's just the it's just the pattern. So as far as the system that I'm going through, probably very similar to you. It's slowing down is key. I have the desired result in my head. I heard, whether I heard Ash do this exactly or heard Mark do this exactly, I know what the phrasing is. I know what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. I hear this smooth, like, it's butter, and then it lands on two. It goes, butter, scat, butter, scat. So I know what I want, but I can't play it at the speed I want. So my thought is if I keep trying it at the speed that I want and I keep playing it sloppy and keep train wrecking it, my brain will memorize that as what is correct because my brain doesn't know that it's wrong. It just says, hey, you keep doing this. We're going to memorize it. Yeah. So I really, really slow down, like you said, you know, 45, 50 BPM, metronome for sure. The first thing I do is I take the problem out of the exercise. So I'm not playing it as a groove. I'm literally playing and just looping that forever and ever. So, you know, even thinking of it as like, well, let me get rid of 30 second notes. Can't that just be 16th of one E and a two E and a three? One E and a two E and a three. It doesn't have to be what it's it's going to become because I feel like I have the raw speed to play this. I can absolutely physically pull this off. My brain can't put the order of two ghosted lefts followed by two strong kicks followed by two ghosted lefts. It's having trouble with that. Mm-hmm. So I have to slow this thing down. So I do that. Then eventually I give it more space. Boom. Got. 
and then I get that down, and then I just slowly inch my way up uh, BPM-wise. And then once I get to something that's maybe useful, like 50 BPM, then I try to find a song that I can throw it into. Okay, um, cool. And I'm not thinking about musical application at all. I'm just literally using the song as, okay, I can make it work with a click track, but that's there's a lot of space between beeps. Yeah. Let me get a song that's maybe 30-second note-based, like some trip-hop thing that's going... And then that feeling, it's like, okay, now let me lock this to... So I'm, I'm working on that stuff. Um, and then what's funny is every morning, I think I'm magically going to be better, and I just start back at 90 BPM. <laughs> let me rip it. And I'm like, nope, got to go back to scratch. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. But the, the good thing that I have... And I think you are starting to have this in your world is I have to learn it so well that I could film it and show it to the entire world of how to do it. Yeah. Because that's actually my job. Yep. yep. So I'm not going to kind of get this down. I'm going to get it down until I can film a video and the whole world thinks, oh, he's always had it like that. Yeah. You know, so and that's a it's a it's a nice responsibility to have because it doesn't allow me to let myself off the hook at like a C minus level. I'm yeah. going to have to film this one day. I mean, I, I thought that I was playing it OK until I turned the camera on. <laughs> the camera doesn't lie. I mean, I looked at it. I was like, "That sounds really bad." Like, and I'm fat. <laughs> oh no, that's just me. Okay, cool. <laughs> that's my body dysmorphia. I didn't know if you went through that as I chug my peanut butter Jamba juice. Go ahead. You need the My Fitness Pal app, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I've got a couple more months before Nam before I have to look like I. Oh yeah, I'm always this fit every all year long. It's like the Nam Crunch. <laughs> Uh, All right, go ahead. Sorry, I think I don't know if I have anything else to say about this topic. I mean, <laughs> is that okay? So how I'm going through it is that pretty much how you practice? Just kind of slow it down. Yeah, but the thing is, I can't comment on if my if my method is effective or not because I still can't do it. It's like the right. the painful process of like when is it going to become something that I can actually use and not feel right. like I'm going to lose track of the time. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I mean, I've been playing that Elven lick right. Or kick right left kick left right since i was first heard elvin jones and it's never felt comfortable so i'm yeah, wondering yeah, like yeah. when it's probably just because i said it doesn't feel comfortable i'm not going to practice it probably that's what it was. i really think there's a huge uh correlation between the time spent with the passion you know the the, the things that i wanted to know I have them down – I mean uh, not to be a jerk, but I have them down really well. Yeah. I really wanted a double stroke roll yeah. and I put the time in. And then when people say flamadiddles, I'm like, OK, hold on. Let me work this out. I know how to play a flamadiddle, but I didn't put double stroke roll kind of time into my flamadiddles yeah. you know, or my flam paradiddles. And same thing with like if you have me play something that's Cuban-based, it sounds like a PDF. If mm-hmm. you have me play something that's a little more Brazilian-based, it sounds a lot – more true because I really listen to the music. I enjoy it a lot. Right. So I think the time it's, you know, we, Mark was definitely making fun of the students in a, in a cool way. So he would, he would play a crash on the downbeat of one uh, with a very simple fill and he'd say, all right, is that cool? And people would be like, yeah, it was cool. And then he'd play a very simple fill again and crash on the uh of four. So it came in on a technically a hipper spot or non-technically i guess emotionally mm. a hipper spot and he said but was that cooler and everybody would go yeah and he's like no it wasn't it was not cooler it <laughs> just exists you make it cool you know and it was like i kind of feel the the same with this stuff there's an inverted double stroke roll is not harder than a double stroke roll it's right. just that we gave one more attention than the other 
and then that makes the one that we didn't give the attention to technically in our minds, it makes it harder. Um, so for you, you're, we're both smart enough to know that kick right, left and right, left kick are e- the exact same thing. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's for me, one it's got more attention, not allowing myself to let loose of my, cause I've said many times the past eight years of my drumming practice has been solely dedicated to control and tempo. Like I have right. just, I mean, I'm still practicing technique to maintain, but I'm always practicing technique with the click on some sort of challenging position on the E's or the ands. Cause I'm always, cause I, I just, I gave up on the idea of it trying to say, I just don't have good time. Like that's a terrible excuse. So that's been my sole practice. So now I'm, I'm learning this lick, which inherently makes me lose sense of time and right. talk about yeah, yeah. anxiety. Cause I'm like, I thought I had this time thing getting kind of under control Right. Now I try to play this lick that I know I can play, and I have no idea where the downbeat is. Yeah. <laughs> it's gone. It's just completely yeah. gone. And, I mean, the the next step for you, once you have this lick down and maybe two or three more like it, is improvising in that zone of 30-second note, you know, just badassery, and keeping track of time. Like, can you not only play these hard licks, but can you also be improvising them in the moment mm-hmm. constantly and still keep time? Because then you now you're bringing in a whole new process of thinking in the moment at that rate of speed of you know that's yeah. that's moving. So yeah. um, that's cool, man. Well, I'm really excited. I, uh, we we definitely need to post our licks. Yeah. Once we get them. Well, down. yeah. I won't. I won't do a before. <laughs> yeah, no, no. We'll do it like slightly after Nam 2019, but and then to your your other point about when is it going to show a clip up? Of uh, Keith Carlock and drop. Yeah, <laughs> this is my lick. Yeah. Hey Ash, can you play this for me real quick and just send me a video? Thanks, buddy. Um, you know, I for me, once I get a lick down, really down, I filmed it. It's on Instagram. You know, I put it up. It's probably three or four months after that before it shows up in my playing without me thinking about it. Mm. Just like. It gets to the point where then someone else brings it up, like, "Hey, what was that thing you did?" And I'm like, "Oh my god, I shit, I shoot, I practiced." Hey, was that the first one? Oh my god, no, no, earmuffs, kids, earmuffs. Fifty six episodes in, and we get the first Shiza. Um, so, anyways, yeah, but I said wanking a, a while back. So, did you? That's yeah. you know what that see that can that can trigger an image in the head, and that can be worse. <laughs> Nothing's worse, though, than coconuts being related to fingernails because now that's changed everything for me. Yeah, you're Uh, welcome. But anyways, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So three to four months later is about when it shows up naturally in my playing. Jeez, Louise. I think we should talk about a featured artist. (laughs) (laughs) Who's our featured artist? So Jimmy Chamberlain, uh, we did a a short little shop shop talk talk story with him because he uh, went to Sockeye Drums. That was the crux of the story. Oh, wow. Um, he, he was originally a Yamaha artist, I think, when the Pumpkins got huge. Yep. Then he went to DW. And then I guess when Sockeye split and started their own brand, he wanted to go back and work with those guys. So it was it's kind of cool to hear him just kind of talk about his experience and why he went back. It was his lo- basically his loyalty to the people who were making his Yamaha drums, who are now at Sockeye. Right. So he wanted to work with them. And then he talks about rejoining the Pumpkins, which I had forgotten that he'd done. There was like a mix-up. There was all kinds of stuff happened with that band. And then he ended up doing the last tour. And I didn't know that he was actually a, a tech guy for a while. He took some time off and developed um, – let me find the story so I can tell you the name of it. It's an, I believe it's an app for musicians that 
was really successful. Um, really? Let me find it. It is... So it's on page 70, if anyone's reading along with us here. Um, Live One, which I don't even know exactly what it did, but he... But it's really good. He apparently did... uh, I mean, he took a, you know no touring for a couple of years just to to do dedicate his time to live one. Hopefully, someone listening has some experience with it and can can share exactly what it does. Is it uh, liveonegroup.com? Yep, I got it. Okay, Crowdsurfing was their flagship software, so it enhances hmm. the viewing experience around their live streamed and on demand programming. So you go to a a baseball game and then you can watch extra content that's streaming live to go oh, along okay. with it. Wow, this is actually like a, a real company. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like he oh, okay. said the heck with go Jimmy. <laughs> go Jimmy. After he uh <clears throat> I'm pretty sure I've told you the story of him sitting down and trying to flambe myself and JP Bouvet yeah, at one yeah. time at Vic's drum shop. Other than that he was very nice. But he did want to make sure he put a hurt on us. It was pretty cool. <laughs> dude can play, man. The dude can play. He yeah, so let me, let's me let talk about the pumpkins. Did you go through an era uh, of brother. obsessing over them? Yeah, huge. So I would say, obviously, coming out of my jazz band high school world was the grunge era. So I'm, I'm you know a sophomore in high school. This thing called Nirvana shows up. It didn't do anything for me. And then this other band called Pearl Jam came along, and that it was like that was the divide in my high school. Do you like Nirvana or do you like Pearl Jam? Oh, okay, I was on the Pearl Jam side. Uh, I just loved it. And then Smashing Pumpkins came out, and I was like, "What is this? This is this is trippier than the grunge thing." Um, mm-hmm. It's I'm not I don't I don't know. Pretty much everyone in the grunge era, I could tell I could draw a correlation to another singer with that singer, but with uh, uh, with the pumpkins, I couldn't. I was like, I don't know who Billy Corgan sounds like. Yeah. Uh, the drumming was, I think, tighter maybe and cooler than what I was hearing in Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just. I remember when I heard Cherub Rock, I was like, Are those single strokes? Yeah. Dun 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 dun. dun. I was like, Oh my god, I gotta learn that. Um, and then the big push for me was this really, really mellow song. I can't even remember the name of it, but it was on the single soundtrack. They had one song on the single soundtrack. Oh, yeah. What a great soundtrack. Yeah. And that had – yeah. I mean that was like the soundtrack of my high school pretty mm-hmm. much. Um, but when that came out, they had this really mellow song and I just I just fell in love with it. So, yeah, I was a huge Pumpkins fan um, and uh, followed Jimmy a lot, tried to learn the drumming a lot. Um and tuned my drums like him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it was really influential. I would say because they were like, you had, like I said, you had Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and then you had all of the other Seattle bands as well. But that was the big divide. And then the pumpkins at the time, that was like a little bit more like, Oh, you're really dedicated to music. You know, mm-hmm. um, I kind of felt like if you were into the pumpkins for your trippy, grunge rock and then you had primus you you had all the bases covered you were fine yeah you just you know uh you had the technical because primus to my generation that was our rush it was yeah, our definitely. version of technical music that was on the radio and then same with tool and then we had smashing pumpkins and smashing pumpkins same thing it was like okay i felt at the time like there's the smashing pumpkins that the world knows about because they're not fans they just hear it on the radio all the hits 
And then there's every other al- track on the album that I think is better than what's on the radio. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the album cuts are great. Yeah, they made great albums. So yeah, I was a huge Pumpkins fan. Were you? Yeah, and it was um I had the I was very fortunate to have my older brother six years older than me. So he was my whole life was very influential on me just staying ahead of the curve with music and culture and sports. I mean, to have to go out in the backyard and play one on one against my brother who's six years older than me. You know, it gave me an advantage when I went to school and played with kids who were my own age. It just sure. it kind of set me up throughout life, and and it, and I'd probably never even told him that. But so he went away to college when I was a freshman in high school. So he oh, okay. would come home, you know, every six weeks or so, and just have all this new culture and all this new stuff to to share. And he had uh, Smashing Pumpkins' first CD, Gish. Yep. And he had that, and he had Helmets. Uh, meantime. Meantime, oh. um, and it was kind of That's before snare. the 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 Seattle scene really took over. Like I, I just kind of discovered Nirvana on my own because I I heard it on the way to basketball practice in seventh grade, and it changed that changed my life forever. But the two years prior to that, he was bringing stuff home, like all these CDs and things. So right. So I guess maybe my timeline is screwed up. But at some point, he brought home Gish. And when I heard that, it was like, whatever this is, this is perfect because it relates to what I'm studying in the Dennis Chambers world and the in the Dave Weckl world. The drumming is more jazz influenced than it is uh, heavy metal influenced, like some of the grunge totally. stuff. So that record is still one of my favorites, and his snare drum sound to me on that on that album just defined it. Like that was what I wanted yeah. forever. I mean, I I broke so many lugs on my snares trying to just get it to sound like his. Yep, yep. Just cranking it up like that. So, yeah, I was a big fan for the first two records. Um, after that, I kind of got so deep into straight-ahead jazz that I abandoned most most rock and stuff. But, yeah, those first two, whatever, the it's Gish and then Siamese Dream. Siamese Dream, yep. Those two were like everyday soundtracks for a good five or so years. Yeah, and and as somebody that I mean, at that time I was in my band, the you know my band that eventually got signed, and then and then we went out with uh, um, Filter for a long time, which their drummer <laughs> lost his gig in Filter because he played one night in Smashing Pumpkins. Oh um, no! So yeah, so when Jimmy Cham- Chamberlain was out for a second, Matt Walker from Filter did the Grammys with him. I remember that, yeah. And Richie was like, cool, you're not welcome back. You you, you leave us even for a night, it's over. And uh, and so, yeah, so I was like, oh my gosh. Like, And I'm, I'm playing congas for him. I'm like, I'm never going to play congas for anybody. <laughs> I don't want to lose this gig. Um, but yeah, that that the one thing that the Smashing Pumpkins gave to my band, besides just musical influence, was the fact that they made albums. They didn't make hits with a bunch of random B-sides. They made great albums and each song led into your next favorite song. And that was something that, you know, obviously my band wasn't able to accomplish mm-hmm. in any way, but we definitely were trying to have 11 great songs that were of equal value mm-hmm. um, instead of just one hit and a, and a bunch of B-sides. So, uh, yeah, I was I was a huge fan of, of what they're doing. And also at the time, just the fact that they brought uh, a female bass player into the limelight yeah. that, you know, I mean, eventually after that, I had a female bass player in another band called Head Rush. And that was, you know, Smashing Pumpkins was one of her favorite bands when she was 11 years old. Yeah. And I'm sure that had something to do with her just seeing like, oh, well, she's doing it and killing it. I could do that. Yeah. 
And uh, so I, I think they were groundbreaking in a lot of ways. It was really cool. So, well, definitely, guys, Jimmy Chamberlain is still just, uh, no pun intended, but smashing. So <laughs> check him out I and uh, look for, yeah, look forward to hearing him on Sakai. Sakai drums, yeah. That's Sakai. what he's playing now. And he's got the cool kit with the sort of symmetrical, you know, small rack tom in the middle, uh, second rack tom on the left, bigger rack tom on the right. Oh, okay. He's yeah, yeah. That, which I, you know, I've never tried that setup because it just it doesn't vibe with my, my what I want a drum set to look like. But I bet right, it's yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of fun. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you don't even try to play it the way it is. You try to play it like it's normal. Yeah. And then you just get. I'm I'm in the middle of that right now. I've got. Uh, I don't know if you saw the picture I put up, but I've got two snare. I got. I have a snare where my floor tom usually is, and a hi hat over that because I've got a left handed student here at camp. So mm. we have a symmetrical drum set where. There's two snares and two hi-hats equal distance from the middle of the bass drum so that I don't have to move things around every time he comes up to try something out on the kit. That's got to be super fun. It is, yeah, yeah, especially when I forget that it's there. And I do like, (laughs) you know, shot, doom, cat, cat, cat. I'm like, whoa, (laughs) what happened to Kata Doom? Where's Kata Doom? She left. And now her friend is over, and her name is Kata Tat. That's awesome. All right, let's get into some gear review. (laughs) You are checking out... A giant snare drum, the Bayer six and a half by fifteen steel snare drum. Yes. Now, full disclosure: is this one of the ones that you actually own because yes. you tried it and you're like, okay, I have to have that. Yeah, it was the one that was my pick of the week probably a month or so ago. Right. Uh, okay. And it just kind of keeps coming back. To, like that's this, that's kind of my. Sa- and people have heard. Um, there's been a few few sessions I've done since this drum got into the mix, and they've all said the same thing. Like, I think this is your sound, man. Like, I think really? this is really what's defining you. And, you know, lo and behold, it's a f- giant 15-inch snare drum that, and it's <laughs> six and a half inches deep, so it's a monster. Uh, but I think I might have described it before, but to go in greater detail, what it is is it's a 1.5-millimeter steel drum that Jim Byer, the, the owner of the company, he hand-rolls it himself and welds it. Um, and then he sends it out to be finished Okay. With some sort of a textured, I don't know if it's paint. I don't know if, what it is. It's some sort of like textured process. Okay. That inside I've, and out, or just the outside? Uh, just the outside. Okay. Which I really, I mean, I've never really talked to him about it, but I think it does the perfect amount of dampening to the shell, so you're not getting that like super bright steel overtone. Right. Um, he's doing that. So and he uses uh, eight lugs instead of ten which I think also kind of makes the tone a little bit more open. More open, sure. And allows you to kind of get that fatter, lower sound a lot easier, which is what this drum does really well, that kind of medium-low, punchy, kind of wide snare sound. Uh, Triple flange hoops, 20-strand wires. This drum has the DW magnetic throw, which is cool. Have you messed around with that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, that's a cool throw because you can. That's one of my favorite. Actually, it's it's addicting. You just keep turning it on and off because it feels so good when yeah. it snaps into place. It, it's silent. I mean, it, it engages pretty totally. much silently. I was yeah. even, I'm even able to like turn the snares on with my leg while I'm still playing, and it's it's really easy to do that. But the but the shocker is the drum is only five hundred and thirty five dollars. That's oh what's wow crazy to me. So it's 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 an amazing now, drum. What about what about heads? Do you just order them from um, somewhere, or does your shop you, carry them? He gives you an option. My drum has just a coded ambassador, but okay. uh, typically he sends it with the coded black dot. 
which in this case, the black dot is is a really good option. I like it. It really kind of gives the, a nice point, a nice focus to the drum. A little, you know, again, it kind of takes out the steelness, for lack of a better term, of it. Got it. Sure. Really versatile drum, and I um I use it recording. It's like my number one drum. I usually kind of start there. Where in the past I would start with a superphonic. This is kind of okay. where I'm starting. If it's a rock and roll modern country kind of thing i wouldn't sure. use this for a salsa band or anything like that although it could probably do that because who knows like yeah you can crank it up yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. probably sound great wow that's that's cool man yeah so it's fun and i think um i think everyone should check them out 15s i mean it's it takes a minute to get used to that i mean especially if you're a small person it's probably going right. to be too much drum to have your legs kind of surrounding it but I've gotten to the point where it just feels comfortable, and I can I can actually set the drum a little bit lower than than I usually, which is what I prefer. I prefer the okay. snare drum to be lower. Um, but they also make shallower drums, so you can get a four by fifteen if you want something like that, or if you get a five and a half. I think it does eight by fifteens if you want to go like ridiculous. <laughs> boof, boof. Yeah, but I like that's this awesome. Man. Six and a half by fifteen is is kind of the five and a half by fifteen I used on a bunch of recordings and that also is a pretty magical drum but now what do we have audio wise do you have multiple tunings or do you just have one tuning yeah this is um this is a demo i did originally for the magazine where i do the whole tuning range playing basically the same type of stuff at each tuning so you'll hear it just kind of go down from super i think it might start medium and then i crank it up and bring it all the way down so you hear it kind of in a medium all-purpose sound then i take it up as high as it'll go and just back it down all the way so awesome. really focus in on that lower stuff that to me is where it's really special perfect let's give it a listen It's time for listener questions. This week, we're going to do three audio questions that were emailed to us within the past couple of weeks. So again, this I think this is a great way to contribute. So if you, if you don't mind hearing your voice on the show and 
If you don't want to hear your voice like me, then you can send them as text. But if you don't mind hearing your voice and us hearing you and interacting with you, you can email your audio question to mdinfo at com. The first one we have is from uh, AJ. Hi, Mike and Mike. My name is AJ Pinsano. I'm from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I'm wondering if you guys have ever made a conscious effort to use your non-dominant hand to perform day-to-day activities like brushing your teeth, opening doors, or eating. I know it sounds silly, but this is a technique taught to me by an old teacher of mine. And I'm wondering if you guys have ever heard of it or adopted it and whether or not it's improved your drumming at all. Uh, Thank you so much for everything you do. Thanks for taking my question. Your podcast is incredible. And have an awesome day. Cheers. Great question. Yeah, and uh, I think most of us, it's almost like the drumming on pillows thing. Most of us at some point get yeah. that brought to our attention. Like, ah, oh, just start brushing your teeth. And, yeah. Um, yeah, doing everything. And just be more left-handed. Open doors with your left hand. Wave yeah. to people with your left hand. Uh, yeah, I definitely used it for myself. I mean, it's not something that I preach to my students, but I, I never ate food with my left hand. I never tried to go that far. Um, but I do a lot of tasks with my left hand. Um, I try to be a little more left-handed in life. Mm-hmm. I, if I if I wave to somebody, it's almost always with my left hand. I just I just get used to that being a little bit more of a dominant hand. So it's not something that I swear by and live by, but it, it is something that made a lot of sense to me. How how could this less dominant hand ever get to the level of my dominant hand when I don't use it as much? Yeah, yes, yeah, tough. So. For me, it was um, I was just lucky to be born left-handed. And okay. you're kind of forced to do right-handed things in this world. So right. uh, so I don't even know. Like if you ask me what hand do I use to eat with, I don't even know. Because I think it just kind of changes depending on the utensil or the food. Really? Or it, I, I think or who I, you're sitting next to, yeah, which just, elbow is hitting I somebody. I think I cut with the left, and, but that doesn't feel right when I'm thinking about it. So I have no idea. Brushing my teeth, I have no idea. It's just one oh, of my awesome. hands. Uh, so <laughs> I, yeah, I was, I was born left-handed, but <laughs> – my dad, my dad was an avid baseball player, so that was one of the first things I did as a kid was learn how to play baseball. And I was trying to be a switch hitter at three or four years old, and I was trying to be a switch pitcher at three or four years old. He finally said, you have to choose. What do you want to be? So I chose, for some reason, to be a right-handed hitter and a left-handed thrower. Wow. Kind of I'm, makes I'm no the sense. Exact, I'm the exact opposite. I'm a left-handed hitter, left-handed golfer, and right-handed thrower. Really? Now, what about yeah, tennis? And, uh, tennis would be racket in my right hand. Ah, see, I play tennis left-handed. I golf right-handed. I throw a football oh. more accurately with my right hand, but longer with my left hand. That's funny. I bat. Batting left-handed feels amazing to me. Batting, and I never make very good contact. Batting right-handed feels horrible, and I, it's spot on every time. But I hate the way it feels to my body. Um, and then, and then, yeah, I think you know, my dad was left-handed, so the clubs that we had in the house were left-handed. So if I wanted to pretend like I was putting at seven years old, I had a left-handed putter. So I just got used to gripping things like that. Um, but yeah, it's always been one of those things that I've I've always concentrated like wow you know what i haven't hit my crash over my hi-hats with my left hand in like three songs i'm getting pretty right dominant right now Mm. and it's so much closer to my left hand why do i keep crossing over my whole body to hit it um so i want i just want to be handed i don't want to be right-handed i don't want to be left-handed just be handed whatever's closest hit it with that hand so yeah aj it's a great question i I think we've all kind of gone through that a little bit yeah i often end my fills with a right hand double so i can hit the crash with my left yeah 
I'm that's with you. kind of just my standard sticking that I'd use yep. almost probably more often. I, for me to end a, a fill on the right side of the kit with a left hand just means, uh oh, where do I go? Like, right. what do I do? Do I reach over to hit that crash? Because I don't put a crash <laughs> way over to the right. I just put it kind of right above the ride. Yeah. So it's yeah. And I, so no, as far I'm as day to day stuff, I would I'd say yeah. I mean, if you if you feel like you're extremely imbalanced, like you're way right handed, you can't even like pick up the newspaper with your left hand. Well, then <laughs> spend the next six months picking up the newspaper with your left hand. Yeah. I write with my right hand. It's just but again, it was going back to school with the way the desks were designed, and I didn't want to get the graphite all over my arm if you write with your left hand. Yep. So that kind of forced me to become a right-handed person, even though I was born left-handed. So, and I think it does have advantages for drumming. I can kind of, I can just kind of say, all right, well, this thing works better if I use the right hand. This thing works better if I end with the left hand or yeah. whatever. So it can't hurt. I mean, it might just make you feel awkward or look awkward, like brushing your teeth. The brushing the, <laughs> the brushing the teeth one, bro. I have almost punched a hole through my cheek. Yeah, I have no control. You just start. You think you're going jib jib jib, and you just go like shakink. I'm like, whoa, wow, that's a lot of power. I have no control over this arm. Like, <laughs> so I've I've definitely caused some gum issues and some oh, cheek issues man. brushing my teeth left handed. All right, all right. Next question What's the next is one? from Kale. Hey, Mike and Mike. This is Kale Cohey from Florida. Thank you so much for taking the time to review my question. Your podcast is so informative and enjoyable. I really can't get enough of it, so please keep up the good work that you guys are doing. My question really revolves around practice. I recently graduated high school, and I'm planning on attending college in the near future. And the university that I'm planning on attending really isn't known for their school of music. It's more of a technical engineering type school. And although I'm planning on studying something in the engineering field. I've been playing drum sets since I was a kid, and I desperately want to keep up my passion and pursuits on the drums. I've tried reaching out to some of the faculty there, and they haven't confirmed that they have drum sets in the practice rooms. And if they do, I don't know how accessible they're going to be to me as a non-music major or a music minor. So I just wanted to reach out to you guys and see what advice would you have for me in this situation, if you guys were in my shoes, uh, what outlets would you look for as far as how to practice? I'm so used to having a drum set in my bedroom where I can just go sit down and practice whenever I want. And now I'm facing this dilemma of living on campus, living in a new environment, and practicing on a drum set is a little harder to come by than I'm used to. And I don't, I would hate to go three or four semesters and lose progress as a drummer just because. I can't keep up continual ways to practice. So what advice, what input would you guys have for me as far as how to practice, um, whether it's places to find a drum set or to store a drum set, or maybe it's non-traditional ways to practice, like playing on my knee or uh, playing on a pillow or something. Um, just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on my situation. Thank you so much for taking the time to hear my question. Yeah, I was there. Um, yeah, we, I think we've all been there. First of all, thanks for the kind words, man. I'm glad you like the podcast. So my my first thought is college is in in so many ways is preparation for what's going to happen in your adult life. Um, having the luxury as a high school kid to play your drums in your parents' house at will at any time of the day. First of all, your parents need so much credit and thanks for that. And I, yes. my mom had to fight neighbors and police and a constant barrage of people who were trying to prevent me from practicing. And her right. comeback was. Would you rather him be on the on the street skateboarding and get in the trouble, or would you rather him be in the house playing drums where I know where he is? 
And nice. there was really no way for a cop to be like, yeah, he should probably go out and run around the streets. That would be right. much better because he won't be making noise. So first of all, thanks to all the parents who have allowed us to be the noisiest human beings on earth. <laughs> Ever. But as soon as you move out of that situation, you're going to be very, very lucky to find a place to ever do that again, I think. Yeah. And without going out and renting a monthly rehearsal spot or or getting lucky and finding a, a trailer or a, or a house that's secluded from other neighbors or being able to buy your own house eventually. But I think, I mean, I know I spent from 1997 through 2008 without being able to practice drum set at will. Right. Yeah. Without And even still, something. I have a studio in my house, but I can't, I can't practice at will because I live with someone. So I can't just be like, <laughs> you know, that movie you're watching. Yeah. I'm going to go just play drums for two hours. Like that's, and I'm I'm working on licks, so I'm going to rip 30-second yeah. notes. That it won't was, be anything consistent. That was the last text message I got. Sometimes you're loud. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, thanks, babe. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I we definitely feel your pain. I think you've got to find your own mechanisms and devices because it, I, I don't foresee it getting back to the way it once was. And not for the foreseeable future. Right. And I also think, too, you're, you're going to learn so much through those restrictions because a, a drum set, will it won't be the norm. It'll be a huge luxury to you to make real noise. And it, it might actually spark a lot of create, creativity in you. It also gives you a chance to focus on things that maybe you just push to the side, like really caring about your technique, working, getting your pad work together, getting your hands really strengthened. Um, you know, it, note placement God, you could you could turn on a metronome and just work on your timing and work on yeah. um, you know uh, super simple exercises that you've just never really cared to fine tune because the drums are so loud. It's like ah, I'm fine. And it's like are you can can you put on a metronome at 40 BPM and then just hit the ease always consistently? Yeah. You know, it's like that's that's something that most people wouldn't do on a drum set. But when you're stuck in a dorm, you're like, okay, I, I'm going to practice. I can't not. I have to keep moving forward with this instrument. And like you said, buddy, you, you said, I don't want to lose the skills I've got. It's like you, you won't. I mean, you might lose them temporarily, but you will have them for the rest of your life. But you can build some new skills and really fine tune, you know, your playing. So, yeah. And you did you mentioned your knee and you mentioned a pillow, but you didn't mention a practice pad. Right. If you need a pad, send an email to mikeslessons.com. I'll get you a pad, bro. <laughs> you need a pad. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, think <laughs> everyone should have a good practice pad, a good bass drum practice pad and a double yep. pedal. You can yep. kind of do everything you need with those three things. Or maybe yeah. two practice pads so you can work on movements from right to left. So two yeah. practice pads, a bass drum pad, and a double pedal, not even to necessarily practice double bass, but no, to be able just to use it as a hi-hat hat or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And you should be able to no, practice I think about weird. anything. And as far as yeah. the college thing, uh, I don't. I'd be surprised if to give you access to the practice rooms if you're not a major, because they probably have drum set or jazz majors who need that time. I know right. in my undergrad, I mean, it was a major university with 35, 40 percussion majors, and we had two rooms with drum sets in it. So. For wow. someone to come outside of the school oh. and occupy that practice room for a couple of hours, it was not cool. It was definitely not. not. Cool. They would come out of that room getting you know the death stare, like "Who are you? What have you been doing? Why you've been in there crapping all over the drums?" Like, right, get right, out. Right. I have a get lesson tomorrow. Get out of yeah, there. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, there you go, buddy. So don't do that, but get in some great practice in your in your yeah. room. But try to All join right. if you have a jazz band. Join the jazz band, and then you'll there you go. You'll get some real practice, which is playing with other musicians. Yeah. All right. Next one is coming in. This is our last one. Last one from uh, Michael Rafter. Michael E A L Rafter. Yes. Hey, it's Michael Rafter from Anaheim, California. I just want to thank you guys first off so much for taking the time. Really appreciate all you put into the podcast. It is really helpful and just entertaining. Thanks, guys. So I had a question related to something I heard mentioned a few podcasts ago. And Dawson, you were talking about fills and musical situations where the kick drum just doesn't really make sense to include in a fill in that particular context and having to be mindful of that. And Mr. Johnston, you always talk about getting the kick drum into fills and your journey of doing that through learning linear fills. And I've started to do that as well. And the kick drum has naturally started to show up into my playing, into my fills. And I've heard you also say how that happens at a certain point where it will just start to naturally show up. So I'm wondering if it's starting to naturally show up and you're in a gig situation and you're just playing fills and your kick is so comfortable in your fills and it's showing up, is that okay or not? Or what is the balance between being intentional about your fills to fit the musical context versus just letting your drumming flow out of you naturally? Hope that makes sense. Thanks again, guys. Take care. Great question. Um, well, I can tell you, one, Michael's here at camp, so I'll just answer this uh, in 20 minutes when he walks in the door. Nice. All right. Everyone have a great day. <laughs> Give us a five-star rating. Uh, one thing I think that you have to think of right away is what is the bass drum's role in anything? Why is it even played in the first place? So when I'm actually thinking about playing a fill, one, I don't really think about fills that much. Um, when you listen to popular music, next time you get in the car and listen to a song that's on the radio, count the number of fills. You'd be lucky if there's one, maybe yeah, two. Unless you, you listen know, so, to like the Who or something like that. Exactly. And, and so, but the the role for me for the bass drum is it's a frequency role, and it's filling up a huge amount of low end frequency. So, if I'm playing four on the floor in a groove, and I've been spending two straight minutes of filling up this room with low end, four on the floor, if I take that bass drum out to play my fill, all the bottom end is going to drop out of the room. So I, I, I want the bass drum there. If I've been playing bass drum on one and three for the entire song, and then I go to this drum fill that has nine bass drum notes threaded throughout it, I'm just going to overload the room with all this low end that just isn't necessary. Um, so for me, bass drum has a frequency role in my fills, and then the other role that it has is punch. If I'm actually crashing and punching stabs in the fills, then I'm using it to accentuate that. Um, but that's about as much thought as I give it. Yeah. I, I think just to clarify with, for my situation, it's exactly what you're saying. If, if it's a song where the, the groove is so steady and so consistent, the moment you stop doing that to do something else, everyone's going to lose the feel. It's just going to everyone in the room is going to like stop bobbing their head for like one measure, two beats. It's just going to happen. So for me, it's very when you're playing pop and country and rock, you have to keep the groove propelling even through the fills, which is why I'd avoid syncopated bass drum notes. There you go. It's not necessarily the bass drum. Sometimes I'll keep the bass drum crunching the quarter notes or eighth notes through the fill. So then it keeps that consistency of driving the groove. 
Right. But it's the moment you start putting the bass drum on the E or the uh. Right. It's like, are you trying to jump people off the groove? Like, what is right. the goal with that? Sometimes that is the goal. But No, and I, I mean, I can tell you this, that if my bass drum... Okay, so let's say that I'm teaching some YouTube linear fill that's clearly drum candy, right? Well, the groove would have to match that type of chaos for that fill to be useful. Right. But for me to play a basic pocket groove and then out of nowhere go... It's like, like you said, am I trying to make people fall down? Yeah. What I, I think it's very simple. When I'm playing in any sort of live situation, if, if the audience has to stop and wait for my fill to finish to enjoy the music, I did something wrong. Yeah. Right? If they have to all fold their arms and go, we'll just wait until you're done, then something went wrong. Yeah. Um, so for the most part, the fill volume-wise, intensity-wise, and complexity-wise always matches the groove. Uh, so if the groove is very simple, the fill might literally be opening the hi-hat on the end of four, and that's my chop for the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I'm playing – if I'm playing, I was just – somebody was asking like, oh, I really love David Garibaldi, and I was showing him some Garibaldi-styled grooves. Well, then all of those linear fills with syncopated bass drums, they work out really good. You can't even tell the difference between the groove and the fill. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then like you said, when you're playing that dance type of gig, every fill that I have has snare on two and four. Yeah, exactly. That never stops. Yeah, you know. So, so yeah, I think it's all based around the fill has to be based around what came. What were the first hundred measures leading up to the fill? That's what actually determines what the fill is going to be like for me. Yeah, and also uh, the drum sound. So if you're playing a sure. 18, 18 inch like or a twenty inch drum that's tight and punchy, you can get away with using the bass drum more as an extra limb. But if you're playing a twenty two or twenty four and it's a little bit boomier and if you're being right. cranked through a big PA system, first of all, you're not going to hear anything more than just the initial stroke. So right. when you start adding in more doubles are out. Double, yeah, it's just gonna be a, a blur. So wow. I think it's sound, it's genre, it's context, it's what kind of Man. effect you're trying. So it's I can't I can't say one way. I, I avoid using bass drums in my fills when I'm playing rock and roll, country, right. pop, anything where the only thing that matters is keeping people's heads bobbing right. up and down. Yeah, and when I think of those, I mean, I just you just have to be a chameleon. When I'm playing that genre, I just think blocky. Like I think, okay, well, I'm going to play blocky, simple things. Yeah. And then if I'm playing something extremely syncopated and extremely funky, then yeah, I'm going to get kind of crazy with it. Well, guys, thanks Ooh. for your questions. We love all of the audio questions. Please keep sending in any kind you want. mdinfo at moderndrummer.com, and we will get to them as soon as we can. Now it is time for our picks of the week. Mr. Dawson, what is yours? Mine is a book that... Um, full disclosure, Modern Drummer publishes it, but we we created this book well before my time here at Modern Drummer, and I was not aware that it even existed until I started working here. But oh, wow. it's, it's called Progressive Independence Jazz. Ron Spagnardi wrote it, I believe, in like 2002 or three. And what it does is it fills in, like if you're looking to study jazz and you go by John Riley's Art of Bop Drumming, or you go by Jim Chapin's uh, Advanced Techniques, or what, what is the name of his book? I always get it wrong. Oh, uh, wait. Who, Jim Chapin? Jim Chapin, Chapin Advanced Techniques. Yeah, Advanced for the Techniques for the Modern Drummer. Yeah, so if you buy that or you buy John Riley's Art of Bop Drumming, there's a lot assumed with your independence and your skill yeah. that if you if that it's going to frustrate a lot of people because all of a sudden you're breaking up triplets between the hand and the foot and you can't even play quarter notes yet. So Ron right. filled in that gap by creating this method, which is very systematic, very logical. You go through 
quarter notes on the snare, eighth notes on the snare, triplets on the snare, do the same thing with the bass drum. And it's all just, you don't even need to like ask a teacher how to do stuff. It's just right there. And every chapter ends with a summary. So you work on the exercises and then you have like a 24 or 32 bar summary where it's, it's applying all those patterns to that. Awesome. I think it's a great way to just get into the jazz independence demands before you then start examining some of the concepts that John Riley and those guys are discussing. So it's, it's a crucial book. I've recommended it to half a dozen people in the, in the last week alone. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I look forward to checking it out. By the way, um, to one of your recommendations, uh, it's actually Michael Rafter, the guy that just had the audio question. At camp, the last two nights, you know, we let the campers pick their own song and just go out and jam. And the last two nights, he's had play-alongs from Jim Riley. Uh, from oh, his, yeah. Is it Studio Survival Guide or what's it called? Uh, Did I just make that up? Survival Guide for the Modern Drummer. There we go. Yeah. Um, so, so anyways, he's had play alongs from that and that's my first time hearing them. They're really good. They I mean, you said like this, band. Yeah. It, it, they're really good. Yeah. So if anyone needs some, some legitimate stylistic play alongs that really are true to the nature of that genre, um, I, I, I was really blown away at how great they were. So, um, and then he hit me up on Twitter and he's like, Hey man, uh, you need me to send you the Nashville number system? I, he, he was listening to our podcast uh, oh, last yeah. week. Yeah, and yeah, that book so. has great playlongs too. His first book, The Nashville Number oh, System. Oh, cool. It's got full tracks. Like one track sounds like a Foo Fighters track. And he includes uh, versions without drums, versions without guitar, versions without bass. So if you're looking to get into learning bass or guitar, you can That's cool. use that book That's as well. That's really cool. Uh, well, my pick of the week this time is a video. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's somebody I've never heard of. Excuse me for being ignorant to this and not knowing this man existed. Fantastic drummer, even more fantastic singer. Uh, actually, equally. And uh, I hope I'm saying his name right. His name is Anderson Pock. Have you heard of this cat? No. Okay. Oh, so, yes, yes. He's and a the Free singer, Nationals. Singer, drummer. Singer, drummer. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so the video is Anderson Pock and the Free Nationals and then colon NPR Music tiny mute or tiny desk concert this is where they bring in bands to this oh, little yeah. library looking thing it's quite incredible the drumming and one thing I've, I've told this on the podcast before but i'm a little bit of a recording snob i like modern day recordings i like hearing everything crystal clear so if you're a huge fan of james brown this is like if james brown recorded today Mm-hmm. Uh, not the band wise, but the vocally, it's very. It's just like, oh man, this is like if James Brown was singing with the Roots. Mm-hmm. This is so cool, and I just his ability to have five way independence. He's got four limbs, all doing individual things that we drummers have to deal with all the time. But his vocals are not related to the drumming in any way whatsoever. His freedom is just incredible. Uh, heads up, there is some explicit language, so um, sorry, just. Kids and parents, I'm just letting you know. I think the first word he said is it says as soon as the video starts, you're like, "Oh, that's offensive." Oh, just great. get over it. <laughs> just just soak it in. It's all good. Um, and but anyways, uh, yeah, I'd never heard of him. I think uh, Karun, one of the Indian campers from Ireland, posted a video just like this is pure pocket. And I was like, all right, you win. I'll click on it. Fine. And I clicked on it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> so, uh, so Karun, thank you for that. But uh, yeah, so check it out. Anderson Pock and the Free Nationals. The video is NPR Music Tiny Desk Concert. And, and it's new. It came out on 2016. So the quality is absolutely fantastic. So great. check it out. That's a great series. I've seen like Wilco and a bunch of other bands on there as yeah, well. Yeah, 
Really cool stuff. So, All right, everybody. Have a fantastic week. I'm going to get to camp. Mike has 19 issues of Modern Drummer to finalize. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we will speak with you guys next week. See you later. Peace.